Hi, this is Josie Posey. And this is Sylvia Bellavin. And you're, you're listening, listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's Sunday, October 1st, and this is your Sunday sermon. I'm continuing in our sermon series today, Lessons from Nehemiah. Today is part eight, and we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 38, and we're going to talk about God's greatness, his goodness, and his grace. But before we do, join me in an opening word of prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, we adore you, thank you for this amazing moment we have to hear from your word again. Lord, let us learn about your greatness, your goodness, and your grace, perhaps in a fresh new way today like we've never heard before. Lord, make it move us today. We just want to be doers of your word. We just don't want to sit with it. We want to be able to do something for you, to bless you, to honor you, and to help build your kingdom. God, I just pray that you'll be with us today and lead us through in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. This week has been a roller coaster of emotions for me. It started a week ago on Sunday night when I got a call from a church member who had a son who was in critical condition in a hospital in San Antonio. It was a horrific situation. And all the while that that was going on, in the midst of all that chaos, the Lord was just so present that By the grace of God, I had a chance to share the gospel with this fellow, and he prayed to receive Jesus as his Savior. And I give God the glory for that, and we're going to baptize him very soon. Then early Monday morning, I received word that another senior saint at church, properly our most senior saint, had finally succumbed to her health issues, and she went home. Jesus extended his hand and took her home, and today she is in glory with him. I'm sharing this with you today because It underscores the truth that there are times when we're pumped up and there are times when we're bummed out. In fact, in our spiritual lives, we often experience indescribable joy when we contemplate God's amazing grace. We also grieve and mourn over our own tendency to tube out spiritually, if you will. Paul linked joy and grief together. In Romans 7, 22 and 25, he said, I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still in me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. As we learned last week, God's people were told to stop mourning and start rejoicing. It's now later in that same month. The branch, booths, and tents of twigs had been taken down. God's word is given central attention once again. But instead of jubilant praise, there's a mood of repentant sorrow. Nehemiah 8 focused on God's word as it was read, interpreted, and applied. In chapter 9, the people respond in prayer with genuine sadness about their sins. Listening to God through his word and responding to him in prayer are twin aspects of every believer's experience. There can be no spiritual growth without the regular cultivation of this dual privilege and discipline. Here's another way to compare the two chapters. In chapter 8, Ezra and Nehemiah comfort the afflicted. In chapter 9, the comfortable are afflicted. Joy and grief are two sides of the same coin. 
After a thrilling encounter with God, which causes them to break into celebration, the believers now come face to face with their own depravity. Interestingly, if you want to study three of the most powerful prayers ever written, they're found in chapter 9 of Ezra, Daniel, and here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah 9 records an extended prayer, which is in fact the longest prayer in the Bible outside of Psalms. D.L. Moody once talked about someone who prayed during a church service. The man began the prayer and he was droning on and after 10 minutes had gone by, finally Mr. Moody stood up and said, while our dear brother is finishing his prayer, let's turn to hymn number 342 and sing it together. This prayer in Nehemiah is not that long, but it's a great model for us to study so that we can learn to put first things first. This prayer is a brilliant mosaic of biblical quotations, recollections, images, and phrases. The Levites who led the people in this prayer of confession knew scripture by heart and relied on the language of the patriarchs, prophets, priests, and psalmists. This confession accurately expresses the people's disappointment with themselves and their confidence in God. In other words, this declaration of guilt has two elements. They confess who God is and they confess their sins. I've been helped in my study of this passage this week by Warren Wearsby's treatment of the text, so I've borrowed his outline. There are three aspects of God we're going to talk about. They are the greatness of God in verses 1 to 6, the goodness of God, verses 7 through 30, and the grace of God, verses 31 to 37. So open your Bible or Bible app to Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's look at the first six verses and talk about our first point, which is the greatness of God. Verse 1 reads, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. This verse says that the Israelites gathered together on the 24th day of the same month. On our calendar, that would be about October 31st. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. These were common signs of mourning that were often done when Old Testament believers were in deep sadness because of a loss or when they were ready to repent and recommit their lives to God. Verse 2 tells us those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. So they had separated themselves from those who would have a bad influence on them. As they heard the Bible read, they no doubt came across Leviticus 20 verse 26, which said, You must be holy because I am holy. I have set you apart from all other people to be my very own. Israel's history tells the tragic story of what happens when believers don't make a break from the world. Some of us are too cozy with the things of this world as well. God wants us to live distinctive lives that draw people to the Savior. Someone has said that separation without devotion to the Lord can become isolation, but devotion without separation is hypocrisy. Notice that they stood up and confessed not only the sins of their fathers, but their sins as well. There was solidarity in their guilt. As we learned last week, they couldn't wait to hear the word of God. In verse 3, we read, They stood where they were and read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So how long did they spend reading the Bible and in confession and worship? They spent three hours reading the Bible and then three hours in confession and worship. The order here is significant. When we read the Bible, we will soon see how short we've really come. Once we contemplate our own sinfulness, we will begin to understand more about God's greatness. As we do, we'll break out into worship. Now, verses 4 and 5 explain how they conducted the service. The Levites divided themselves into two groups. 
Some were standing on the stairs on one side of the assembly, and the other group stood across from them. These two groups called back and forth to the congregation, one group confessing the sins of the people, the other praising God for his greatness. It's like an antiphonal chorus. The first group called out with loud praises. This literally means that they cried out. The second group focused on God's character as they sang. In fact, the rest of this chapter gives the actual words they used. Cries of guilt are followed by shouts of praise for God's greatness, goodness, and graciousness. Tears of grief form the lyrics of lament, while tears of joy transpose the anthem of adoration. In verse 5, it says the worshipers invite the people to stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Before they come to a time of necessary confession, they must first praise the one who can alone hear, pardon, and change them. He never changes and will never go back on his word because he is eternal. Their prayer continues in the last part of verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. In this chapter, the believers reflect on God's nature and character as well as his mighty works in history. Adoration is really the heart of a true prayer. If you're struggling with your faith today, it may well be because your view of God is too small or maybe too narrow. Or it may be that your theology is fine, but you don't think God has much to do with your life today. David Wells, a theologian, refers to this view as the weightlessness of God. He writes that our sense of inadequacy or ineffectiveness can be traced to our limited understanding and experience of God. He writes, God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, his grace too ordinary, his judgment too benign, his gospel too easy, and his Christ too common. Friends, we must glory in the incomparable magnificence of our grand God. Verse 6 starts off with a clear statement of God's greatness that is grounded in the opening verses of Genesis. You alone are God. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. There's no one like our God. The evidence for his greatness is seen in his works of creation, as Psalm 19.1 clearly states. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. During the French Revolution, many people wanted to get rid of Christianity forever. On one clear night, an atheist boastfully proclaimed his beliefs to a poor peasant, saying, Everything will be abolished, churches, Bibles, and the clergy, yes, even the word of God itself. We shall remove everything that speaks of religion. The peasant gave a quiet chuckle. The atheist wanted to know what the believer was laughing about. The peasant then pointed to the stars and replied, I was just wondering how you were going to manage to get all of those bright lights out of the sky. It's always best to begin with the greatness of God. If we focus too much on what he gives us or on what we want from him or what we want him to do for us, we may find our hearts becoming selfish. Do you see God as great today or is your God too small? Next, let's talk about the goodness of God, verses 7 to 30. The bulk of this chapter, right in these verses, focuses on the goodness of God. God is clearly the focal point, as the word you is used over 50 times. In verses 7 to 15, he's the subject of every sentence, and the word give is used in one form or another at least 16 different times. This part of the prayer recounts the history of Israel revealing God's goodness to his people and their repeated failure to appreciate his gifts and obey his will. George Santayana, a Spanish philosopher, has said, 
He who forgets the past is condemned to repeat it. Amen. Romans 15.4 helps us to see the value of studying the Old Testament. Paul writes, Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. God's goodness is seen in at least four ways here in Nehemiah 9. First is in the word forming. In verses 7 to 18, the prayer begins with how God formed the nation of Israel. He chose Abram and brought him out of Ur and made a covenant with him. Then when God's people were suffering in Egypt, verse 10 says that God made a name for himself by dividing the sea and releasing his people from bondage. In verse 13, they recall God's goodness in the giving of the law. And in verses 14 and 15, they praise God for how the newly formed nation was given possession of the land that was promised to them. After this extended praise time where the focus is on God for his goodness, the choir of confession sings out the words of guilt in verse 16, but they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. This is followed by a reply from the other side of the choir loft in verse 17, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. They are guilty, but God is good all the time. So the second way we see God's goodness is in the word leading. Look at verses 19 to 21. After forming the nation, God was committed to lead the people on a daily basis, even when they disobeyed him. We see that in verse 19. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine the way they were to take. Verse 20 says that God gave his spirit to the people to provide for their spiritual requirements and food and water to meet their physical needs. Verse 21 tells us that for 40 years, as the children of Israel wandered in the desert, their feet did not swell and their clothes did not wear out. God's goodness is seen through his forming of the nation and by how he led them on a daily basis. Next is the word providing, verses 22 to 25. He also provided for them with everything that they needed. He helped them defeat their enemies and gave them kingdoms and nations. He multiplied their numbers by blessing them with children. Verse 25 is a good summary of how God showed his goodness by providing for their needs. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. Did you catch that? God gave them much more than they deserved. The land was fertile. Their houses were already furnished. The water was already running and the fruit was just waiting to be picked. They had everything they needed and it said they reveled in God's great goodness, which literally means that they luxuriated in God's provision. In a similar way, God has given us everything we need as well. 2 Peter 1.3 says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Well, that leads to a question. Are you luxuriating in God's goodness today? Or are you taking him for granted? Are you focused more on what you don't have? The fourth way that we can see God's goodness is through correcting. Look at verses 26 to 30. After singing God's praises for his wonderful provision, the other choir hangs their heads and sings in a dirge-like manner. They remembered in verse 26 how their forefathers acted in the book of Judges. 
but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets. They committed awful blasphemies. This is called defiance. They knew what God wanted because he had made it very clear. Even though every one of their needs was met, God's people exhibited a rebellious spirit and tried to eliminate both the message and the messengers. Instead of praising God for his goodness, they blasphemed him. As a result, verse 27 tells us that God handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. I want you to notice how God's goodness pervades his personality. I picture the praise choir singing the last stanza of verse 27, fortissimo, in other words, very loud. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. And then they hold their final note. The confession chorus rises to its feet and sings what sounds like a requiem in verse 28. But as soon as they were at rest, they did again what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they ruled over them. The praise choir answers, And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. By the way, aren't you glad that God delivers each of us time after time? The confession chorus then belts out these somber words in verse 29. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. In verse 30, we see that God handed them over to the neighboring peoples. In other words, he corrected them by sending their enemies to rule over them. God used successive world powers to both punish and correct them. First, it was Assyria, then Babylon, Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. But all of this was done because he is a good God. He demonstrates that fact clearly through his forming of the nation by leading them, by providing for them, and even correcting them. Corey Ten Boom writes, Deep in our hearts we believe in a good God, yet how shallow is our understanding of his goodness? How often I have heard people say, How good God is! We prayed that it would not rain for our church picnic, and look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather, but God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. God is great. And God is good. And there's one more point of his character that is given prominence in this chapter, and that is the grace of God. Let's look at verses 31 to 37. So the praise team sings out again in verse 31, In your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are gracious and merciful God. God does not treat his people as they deserve, and that's a good thing because he is a great, mighty, and awesome God. Because he is a God of grace, he is good to his people, even when they're not good to him. In his mercy, God didn't give them what they deserved. In his grace, he gave them what they didn't deserve. Drop down to verse 33, where it says, In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. The grief team finishes this chapter by singing out the wrong things the people had done and how they are slaves to others because of their sins. Did you notice the change in pronouns here? Instead of focusing on their sins, the people now say, we did wrong. Until we can personally own our specific transgressions, we will miss out on experiencing the grace of God. The closing stanza, verse 37, ends in a jarring note. 
It says, we are in great distress. The people recognize that generation after generation, the same sin problems seem to come back. Some of you are listening to this today and you're brave enough to admit that you are in great distress. You have your own history of good intentions that fell apart. You've seen the cycle of sin in your life where you mess up. Then you repent and confess and walk with God and then sin again and repent again and confess all over again. And God delivers you time after time. God doesn't just offer help from heaven. He offers help from the inside of those of you who are born again. It's possible to change. God himself invests in us in a way that we discover over a lifetime. We don't have to stay in the sin cycle any longer. Jesus has joined us in the process, and that's the indescribable good news. We have a royal, a divine, and permanent companion. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus' ministry to us in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Instead of sinning and confessing and sinning and confessing over and over again while we're struggling and failing, being tempted in the midst of the battle, let's draw near to Jesus. Let's covenant together, beloved. God isn't sitting back waiting for us to fail. There is grace, mercy, companionship, and strength through Jesus, not just when we have tears of gladness, but when we have tears of grief. So let's draw near to him. This entire chapter speaks of grace. God demonstrates his greatness, his goodness, and what do the people do? They turn from him. They run from his word. They persist in doing things their own way. In short, they sin repeatedly. At any point, God could have said, that's it. You've messed up too much. You're on your own. While he did send some correction into their lives, he never stopped loving them. When they sinned, God exhibited his grace, or as Romans 5.20 puts it, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. The King James Version is even more graphic. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Max Licato tells the story of a young girl from Brazil who wanted to see the world. Discontent with a home having only a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove, Christina dreamed of a better life in the city. One morning she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, her mom Maria hurriedly packed to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore and got one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photo booth, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to the city. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were unthinkable before. Knowing this, Maria began her search in bars, hotels, and nightclubs, any place with a bad reputation. She went to all of them. And at each place, she left her picture taped on the bathroom mirror, tacked on a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that a young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. 
Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for a secure pallet. Yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. Friend, no matter what you've done, no matter what you have become, it does not matter. Jesus wants you to come home. In verse 38 of the text today, it says that the people made a binding agreement to put in writing. This means it was personal, it was practical, and it was public. Let's look at that real quickly. What do you need to do today? First of all, do you personally see God as great, as good, and as gracious? If not, determine to lock into those theological truths and never doubt them again. Personalize your faith by making it real. Next, based on who he is, what is the Holy Spirit prompting you to do right now? What practical step does he want you to implement? And thirdly, how can you make your decision public? You could call a friend and tell him or her. If you're a believer and have never been baptized, you can take that step. Or you could slip out of your chair during invitation time. Or you could respond right now where you're listening, where you're driving, wherever you are today. You can come with confession and prayer or conversion. Right where you are, Jesus will meet you today. So let's see how God wants you and me to respond today. If tears of tender joy fill your eyes, don't hold back. And if sobs of sorrow ambush you, follow the Holy Spirit's promptings. We're going to live today. We're going to be standing at the invitation time. But if you're listening to this or you're watching this from some other location, right where you are, let the words of God penetrate your head and your heart so that you will live out the truths of what you heard today through your hands. And all of this, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, who is ready, willing, and able with his greatness, goodness, and grace to save your life. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.